Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 16. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness of old, and we praise you again this morning, and lift up your name, and we want your name to be hallowed and honored. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to all of us through your word this morning, help us to see you in a fresh way, remove from us the distractions that arise within our own hearts, Lord. And all the ways that we think, Lord, about life and about you that are not right, we ask, Lord, that you would correct those ways of thinking and guide us in your truth and teach us your ways. And Lord, we, just, we are so thankful for this opportunity and privilege to be your children and to hear from you. So please, Lord, help us and we listen with expectation, and we want to learn, and we want you to be honored and glorified. And so we commit this time of preaching to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come a long way in the Gospel of John, but we still have a long way to go. There are 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, 21. So as we're venturing 
now into chapter 11, we are venturing right at the middle of the Gospel of John. The very middle of the Gospel of John is this episode of the sickness and the death and the raising of Lazarus, right in the middle of the Gospel of John, as well as the fifth I am statement of Jesus. And as you know, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, various times Jesus makes these amazing statements that really only God would make and can make. And the fifth statement he makes right here in this episode is, I am the resurrection and the life. A powerful and amazing statement. A fitting episode right in the thick of the Gospel of John, wouldn't you say? I mean, when you think about the Gospel of John, isn't it fitting that right in the thick of it, we've got this story of the the raising of Lazarus and the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And furthermore, this episode is not only the middle of the Gospel of John, but it's also a pivot in the Gospel of John. It's an incident that transitions us and moves us from the first part of the Gospel of John to the second. So it actually does act as a pivot. There's two main parts of the Gospel of John. As we stand at the middle and we look backwards, we look at the, the first part that we've just come through. And what do we see in the first part of the Gospel of John? Well, we see that John covers the ministry of Jesus, his words and his deeds Uh, starting from the inception of his ministry, right when he was baptized and he began to gather his disciples, all the way up to the last Passover that Jesus attended. That's the first part of the Gospel of John. The ministry of Jesus as a whole. Now look with me at chapter 10 and verse 40 to 42. And you'll notice that this first part of the Gospel of John begins and ends with the witness of John the Baptist. So you'll remember that after the prologue, after the prologue, which is John chapter 1, 1 through 18, John jumps right into talking about John the Baptist and his witness to Jesus. And at the end of this first section, look at verse 40 of chapter 10. And he went away again, Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So that's John's way of kind of wrapping up that first section in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist came, he gave his witness, and it was successful. People actually did believe in Jesus. Now, friends, if we stand in the middle of the Gospel of John and we look forward, what do we see? So we look back, we see the overall ministry of Jesus up to the last Passover. And if you know the Gospel of John, we look forward from this point. And what we see is a change in structure and a change in the flow of the story. Instead now of Jesus preaching to crowds, arguing with the Jews, and doing miracles, instead of that, if you know the Gospel of John, what we see coming is the Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, Right? And we have a long discourse of Jesus, chapter, chapter 13 to chapter 17. Just If you have a red-letter Bible, it's just all red letters. Chapter 13 to chapter 17. So the structure is going to change. And immediately following that upper room long discourse where he's talking to his disciples, we have the arrest and the trial, the execution, and the resurrection of 
Jesus. That is the second half of the Gospel of John. It has to do with the final Passover that Jesus celebrated and what we know as the passion of Jesus Christ. That's the second half of the Gospel of John. It's amazing. It's a 21-chapter book. One half is taken up with his passion. So in the first half, we see Jesus preaching. What do we see him preaching? That the whole world is evil. That's something we were trying to tell people uh, this weekend at the fair. Are you a good person? Pass the test. Earn a dollar. And most people come up to the test and they say, yes, I'm a good person, right? And then they try to defend their goodness as we go through the Ten Commandments. They try to argue, yeah, no, I haven't really broken that one. Okay, maybe I'll, and they admit it. And then after they admit it all, they say, well, yeah, but I'm, I am good because I'm, I'm still trying and I'm repenting. They're trying to defend their own goodness. That's what they did in Jesus' day. That's what they continue to do until today. And we're continuing the ministry of Jesus by preaching no one is good, right? That's the message of Jesus Christ. We have seen that throughout his preaching in the Gospel of John. The world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And that goes for all the religious folk, as well as the irreligious as well, right? If you were at the fair the last three days and you were giving the test, did, it, did you find anyone get angry with you when you told them that they were no good? I had a few people that got really angry with me just by telling them that they're actually not good in God's sight. So that hasn't changed. But not only do we see Jesus in the first half of the Gospel of John preaching the world is evil, there is no one good, there is no one righteous, but he also holds forth the hope, and that is whoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I came into the world to lay down my flesh for the life of the world. And whoever believes in me, whoever eats me, will live forever and not perish, right? So he preaches on the one hand this message, no one is good, no one is righteous. But on the other hand, salvation is found in him. That's the first half. What's the second half of the Gospel of John? Not only is, not, Jesus isn't proclaiming salvation anymore, he's saving us in the second half of the Gospel of John, right? He's not just saying he's the bread of life who came to die, he cut, he's dying now in the second half. He's doing what he said he would do. Praise God for the second half of the Gospel of John, amen? So chapter 11 and 12 form the bridge or the transition from the first half to the second. It's kind of an interlude, taking us from one to the other with the raising of Lazarus. And I'd like to point out um, three things that happen that follow the consequences of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And uh, he raises him from the dead in chapter 11, and then you can see these things uh, the ramifications of that, the consequence of that happen in chapter 12. And here's what they are. Number one, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and you'll remember this if you're familiar with the book, the leadership of Israel begins to seek to kill Jesus in a calculating way, right? So after he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's the last straw. They're saying, we need to kill this guy. The whole world is going to believe in him if we don't stop him. And what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John is kind of spontaneous uh, explosions where they want to stone him on the spot. But what we see now after the raising of Lazarus is a formal calculating uh, strategy to try to kill Jesus. 
And it doesn't take them long either. They say, we've got to get him. And they get him at the, at the Passover that's not far away. So one consequence of raising Lazarus is the leaders say, we are going to kill him for sure. Here's another consequence we see, and it flows on into chapter 12. Mary anoints Jesus with a very costly ointment and wipes his feet with her hair. And she does that, I, I think, because in the, in the chapter 11, she kind of is really upset with Jesus. She's dis distressed that he didn't come when she called him, right? If you had been here, Lord, Lazarus, our brother, would have been alive. And, and Martha went out to meet Jesus when they heard he was coming. Mary didn't. I get the sense that in chapter 12, after Jesus has risen Lazarus, she's, in a sense, just worshiping Jesus and humbling herself before him and just loving him for his beauty and his wisdom and his love for her family and for her soul. So one consequence of this episode is Mary anoints Jesus, and Jesus says, she has anointed me for my burial. So Jesus connects that with his death. What she's doing here, yeah, she's loving me, but this is actually for my death and my burial. So you can see how this is all connected with his death. And furthermore, Judas, when he sees this waste of ointment in his mind, then he decides, that's the last straw. And he goes out to betray Jesus at that point. So again, we see that from raising, raising Lazarus from the dead, there's things that follow that set in motion his death from this. And then the third thing that happens, we see in chapter 12, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, crowds come out to meet him from Jerusalem when he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey for the last Passover. That is the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. John tells us in chapter 12, why did all these people come out and wave palm branches and shout Hosanna to the king? It was because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so they believed that he was the Messiah, the king. So again, there was another consequence of raising Lazarus from the dead, which also further confirmed the leadership that he needs to die. So my point in saying all this, brothers and sisters, is do you see the connection between 11 and 12? We have the episode of Lazarus and then all these things that follow, and it leads right into chapter, uh, right into the second half of the Gospel of John, his death. This is the pivot right here. This morning we're going to begin to study this bridge, chapter 11 and 12. And we'll start with the story of the sickness and death and resurrection of Lazarus. It's a little bit lengthy, the, the story of Lazarus, so we'll break it up and not cover it all this morning. This morning, we will not look at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That is, we won't look at the solution to the problem. We'll look at the problem. We'll look at his sickness and his death this morning. And next week, God willing, we will look at when Jesus raises him from the dead. I'd like us to consider three things this morning from this story. I think these are three lessons that we need to take away from the passage that we read. And these three lessons will be my three sections this morning. So here the, here's the three sections and the three lessons. Number one, pronounced suffering. Pronounced suffering is no indication that God does not love us. Pronounced suffering is no indication that God doesn't love you. Number one. Number two, Pronounced suffering 
is no indication that God isn't in control. And number three, God has suffered for us to finally deliver us from all suffering. So let's begin. Number one, pronounced suffering is no indication that God doesn't love us. Now the story of Lazarus being dying and rising is a story that I think we would all agree plucks the most sensitive chords of the human heart. And you can tell that's true because this is a passage that's commonly read at funerals, right? And a funeral is a sensitive time for people. This passage, the story gives people hope. I would be happy if you read it at my funeral, okay? Because it's a story that has to do with suffering, sickness, loss, and death. And not just any suffering and sickness and loss and death, but the suffering and sickness and death of a loved one, okay? And that's something that every single one of us has faced or will face, right? Do you agree? You're going to face what goes on in this chapter, friends. And that's why it's such a special chapter. Now, sickness and death is no petty thing. I hope you don't think it is. Oh, big deal. Well, that's not how the Bible thinks about death. The Bible tells us that death is our last and greatest enemy and that Jesus came into the world to abolish death and to bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. So one of the purposes of Jesus' coming was to deal with death. That's not a petty thing. And it's an enemy, the last one, the big one. So the Bible says death is this very significant thing. We all know, if we're, if we're familiar with the Bible, suffering and death did not exist originally when God created the world, amen? So the way things are right now wasn't the way things were. When God created the world, he said everything is good, and it didn't include suffering, sickness, or death. We also learn in the Bible, suffering, pain, sickness, and death will not exist in the future. Praise God. Amen? It will not exist in the future. So it is not natural, and it is not good, and it is not a part of life. It's not just another part of life. There's a saying in French, c'est la vie. Have you guys heard of that one, right? What does that mean? Such is life. Bad things happen and they say, c'est la vie, right? Such is life. Bad things happen. We have sayings like that in English as well. And there's truth to that. Our existence right now, bad stuff happens and that's just how things are right now, right? But biblically, that isn't really what life that's not really a part of life. And it, I think we're jaded if we think c'est la vie is really absolutely and ultimately true. Death is better seen as an interference of life or a rupture of life. So where death is, that's when life is taken away. And that's what's happening with Lazarus here. Lazarus, verse 1 tells us, was sick. And the Bible writes about Lazarus's sickness um, as a problem, right? Do you, do you agree that verse 1, there was a man who was sick. That's a problem. It's a problem worth writing about, and it's a problem worth sending to Jesus for. Jesus, we have a problem. 
Lazarus is sick. And who is Lazarus? Well, we read here he's from Bethany, and he's the brother of Mary and Martha, and John assumes that we know who they are, which shows that um, these stories of Mary and Martha and Jesus' relationship with them were something that was already well known. John's not introducing them for the very first time. What do we know about Lazarus? Well, we see he's from Bethany. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. But, I mean, was he the older brother of Mary and Martha? Was he married? Did he have kids? We don't know. Was he the younger brother of Mary and Martha, their little baby brother, without kids? Was he single? Was he in love with somebody in the village of Bethany? We don't know, but... It's helpful to think about that because sometimes we can just read, oh, there was a guy named Lazarus who was sick. And we, we don't think about this guy was a real guy who had a life, right? He had a family. He had aspirations. And his life is being interrupted and destroyed. Verse 3, the sisters sent word to Jesus. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, the sisters send word to Jesus because they love Lazarus and they're scared for him. Now, they think, you know, he was, he's been sick for a little while. I didn't think we needed to call Jesus. I thought maybe he might get better. But it looks like he's taking a turn for the worse. We are scared for our brother's life. Quickly, go get Jesus. Obviously, his condition was serious and he was probably in a lot of uh, discomfort. More importantly, brothers and sisters, more importantly than the sister's love for Lazarus in this chapter is Jesus' love for Lazarus. Amen? So we can see their love for Lazarus and how they called for Jesus. But we see Jesus' love for Lazarus in this chapter. And his love is so great for Lazarus that the sisters know that, that he loves Lazarus. And they address Jesus in this way, Lord, behold, the one that you love is sick. So they know that he loves Lazarus. And verse 5 tells us, if you look there with me, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now we know that the Apostle John is called the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved right and John says that about himself in the gospel of John so John is quick to say Jesus loved Jesus loved me or loves me right and when John says I am the beloved disciple I am the one Jesus loves we can see from this chapter John is not meaning he's the only one Jesus loved so when you read that John's the beloved disciple, don't say, oh, that's kind of not fair. I wish I was the beloved disciple, right? How come, John, how come John's the one Jesus loves? John doesn't mean for us to think like that at all. He never intended to be understood that way. He's simply expressing his awareness, his self-awareness, that Jesus loves him. And John tells us, brothers and sisters and friends, to know that God loves you is the highest knowledge that you can have. Do you believe that? Really? To know that God loves you, to be able to say, I am the one that the Son of God loves, 
John tells us that's the highest knowledge you could have, to know the love of God for you, what kind of love it is, and that he has it for you. John had that knowledge, and he didn't have it just for himself. He's saying, that's my self-awareness, but I want you to have that awareness too. I want you to know that God loves you. And we're, we are all to realize that we are the ones that Jesus loves as well. It's not just him. It's Lazarus, it's his sisters, it's me, and it's you. Praise God. Can you say that this morning? Jesus loves me. Amen? I am the disciple that Jesus loves. So Jesus loved Lazarus. Augustine, who commented on this, Augustine, just like we preach the gospel, John here, he did the same thing thousands, a thousand and, you know, 1,600 years ago. Augustine preached through the gospel of John. When he got to this section, he said this. The sisters did not say, come, for the intimation was all that was needed for the one who loved. Notice the sisters don't say come. Did they ask Jesus to come? No, they just say, behold, just wanting to let you know he's sick. The one that you love is sick. They did not say come, for the intimation was all that was needed for the one who loved. In other words, it is enough that thou knowest, for thou art not one that loveth and forsaketh. So we, we find out what they thought of Jesus by just saying, behold, he's sick. So here's my first point this morning. Someone that God loved, someone that God loved and loved deeply was horribly, horribly sick and uncomfortable and dying. And he died and the family was distressed. And so we see from the Bible that pronounced suffering is no indication that God doesn't love us. And so I'd like us to just take that point and apply it to our own life. When you face situations like this where you are distressed or your loved ones are distressed or you're in a lot of discomfort or you're dying or you die, it's not because God doesn't love you. Number two, pronounced suffering is no indication God isn't in control. Now there's an ancient question that has not gone away. If God is loving... If God is loving, why does he allow suffering? I mean, if he's God, all-powerful and in control, then he could stop it. So if he's loving, why does he allow suffering if he's a good, kind, loving God? If he can s stop that? That's an ancient question that's not gone away in our world. And the conclusion, friends, that a lot of people come to when they think about this question is this. Since there's suffering, that means that God is not a God of love. Because if he's a God of love and he's God and he's all-powerful and in control, he'd stop it. So since he doesn't stop it, he's not a God of love. Don't tell me he's a God of love. A lot of people, when they face pronounced suffering, come to that conclusion. When everything's going well, oh yeah, God loves me, God loves me. And then when things go bad, where's God? He doesn't love me. So this is pretty significant. Here's another conclusion people come to. 
If they don't want to abandon the idea that God is a God of love, they'll abandon the idea that God is a God who's in control and all-powerful, right? So they'll say, okay, I definitely do believe God loves, but I've given up the idea that he's all-powerful and in control. He just couldn't do anything about it. He's not, he's not in control. So I'll continue to believe in him as a God of love, but I've changed my idea of what God is. Now, what does the Bible say to this question? Does the Bible take those two conclusions? Does the Bible say, yeah, God isn't a God of love, or yeah, God isn't in control? No. The Bible rejects both of those conclusions, and the Bible reveals various reasons why God allows suffering and sickness and death, and it's a very big subject. It could take up many, many sermons, so I'm just going to touch on it here. Let me give two very basic reasons why the Bible says suffering happens and death happens. Number one, and these are not popular, okay? These are not what the world likes to hear. Number one, the wages of sin is death. Why does death happen, according to the Bible? God, the just judge of all the earth, brings upon the wicked and the rebellious suffering and death as a punishment, as, a, as the wages for their sins. Do you believe that's true? Well, if we don't believe that's true, then we might as well stop believing in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross doesn't just reveal God as a God of love, it also reveals God as a just judge, he's a God of wrath, and there's wages to sin, right? Here's two biblical examples. The fall. Adam and Eve sin against God, and God brings upon them in judgment suffering and death. That's the origin of suffering and sickness and death and pain. Is the curse that God brought upon humanity. So one of the answers, this is not exhausting the subject, but one of the answers as Christians that we need to respond to the world with is that you know why suffering exists and death exists? Well, it exists because of sin, and this is the curse. This is God's judgment upon humanity. Amen? Here's another example from the Bible. The grandson of Herod the king, Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill all the babes in Bethlehem, also had the name Herod or the title Herod. And in the book of Acts, we read that one day he was giving a speech, a political speech of some kind, and he had this beautiful gold robe on. And as he was giving the speech, the sun was setting and the sunbeams were striking his golden robe. And the man was just shining brightly from the sunbeams, right? And the crowd was impressed with his speech and they were impressed with his appearance. And so they began to say, he's not a man, he's a god, right? He's not a man, this is a god. And what happened in Herod's heart at that moment? Did he say in his heart and then out of his mouth, no, 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 I'm not a god. I'm a man. No, he didn't. He kept his mouth shut. He liked it. And what did God do? He brought upon that man a horrible, horrible disease. And he died not long later in great agony. So don't let anyone fool you, okay? One of the reasons why suffering and sickness and death happens is because the wages of sin is death and God gives that to the wicked 
and to the rebellious. Don't forget that. It's not the only reason. Here's another reason. God also uses suffering to get our attention and to turn us to himself. Here's an example from the Bible. The nation of Israel, forgetting God, turning from God, ignoring his word, and God brings upon them judgments. These are the wages of sin, but it's not just to punish them. It's to punish them, but it's also to get their attention, right? Look, guys, you have sinned against me and gone away from me, and I'm sending you the Babylonians to punish you in order to wake you up and get your attention so that you can turn back to me. So why does God allow sickness and suffering if he's in control? Is it because he doesn't love us? No. But it's because he also, by suffering, reaches out to us to grab our attention. We see that in the book of Revelation also. God pours out judgments upon the earth, and there's a lament after he pours out his judgments. Even so, they didn't turn from their rebellion, right? So he pours out these judgments, but they didn't listen. They didn't humble themselves under God's hand. So even up to the very end, God is seeking to get people's attention by his judgments, by suffering and sickness. When it comes to the question of suffering in general, why is sickness, why is there death, why is there suffering, the Bible actually sees no problem of evil. There's no problem there. The answer is because of sin. The answer is because of judgment. But there is one problem of evil that the Bible does raise, and does address, and that is this. Why do the righteous suffer? So the Bible, the, the people in the Bible, the, the authors of the Bible, they're not wondering why does everybody suffer? That, they never ask that question in the Bible. Why is there suffering in the world? They never ask that question. Why is there death in the world? They never ask, they know why. But what does cause them to ask a question is, why do the right, why does God's people suffer? The ones who are his children, the ones that are under his wing. Why them? Because they suffer too. And that's what the book of Job is asking. Job is righteous. Job is God's child. Job is right with God. Job is under his care. And Job's wondering, why am I suffering? Now, the story of Lazarus, brothers and sisters, falls into this category because Lazarus is one that is under the care of Jesus. Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is a disciple of Jesus. He's a righteous one. He's one that belongs to God. And so this story falls into that category. Why, is the, why are the children of God suffering? And it sheds light on this question. And this story gives us great comfort and great encouragement and great peace when we think about that question. Why do we as his children, as Christians, why do we suffer? Do you, ever, do you ever wonder as a Christian why you suffer? Do you ever stub your toe really bad or break an arm or lose, lose money or lose sleep or get a disease that's, that's rare? And do you ever wonder, I'm a Christian, right? God's supposed to be looking after me. Or if God loves me, why is he doing this to me? Or is that a sign that I'm not a Christian? Is it a sign that um, I'm not right with God? Oh, he's, putting his, he's not putting his favor upon me, so I must not really be his. Do you, you ever question those things when bad things happen to you? 
Well, let's learn a lesson from this story. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that he was sick, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, this is encouraging because what we see here is that Jesus sees and recognizes a good and wise purpose for Lazarus's sickness. And Jesus looks through the immediate situation to the end of it. He sees what it's going to result in. And he recognizes the Father's hand in it. And he recognizes that the Father has a good and wise plan in Lazarus's agony and death. That's encouraging, isn't it? This is a child of God, remember. This is a believer in Jesus. The words that Jesus gives here, if you turn with me back to chapter 9, verse 3 are very similar to what he said about the the man that was born blind. 9 verse 3, Jesus says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but that it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So again, he sees in this situation, the glory of God is at work here. There's a purpose, there's a good and wise purpose in him being born blind. And a good and wise purpose in Lazarus being deathly sick and also dying and in, his, in this family that he loves being distressed. There's a good purpose. Jesus says in John 11, verse 4, this sickness is not to end in death. That's a beautiful, beautiful word, beautiful promise. I'd like to say this, brothers and sisters. I believe that the true suffering, um, or that this is true of all the suffering of all God's people, What do you think? The suffering of all God's people and all God's children, no matter how horrible it is, no matter how destructive it is, and no matter if it results in death and distress, it is not unto death if you belong to God. That's encouraging, isn't it? So I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself in distress and trouble and and, and even the jaws of death, please remember this. If you belong to God, it's not going to end in death. Lazarus actually physically died, and even then Jesus said, it's not going to result in death, which is amazing. Because what that means is Jesus sees even beyond the grave, even beyond physical death, and he sees that's not final. I can bring life and blessing even out of that, and I will, and God will. In other words, we learn here in verse 4 that being a Christian is not about exemption from suffering in any way, but it's about God causing us to triumph through our sufferings, and it's about God bringing life and blessing and glory to his name out of our sufferings. That is the way God works, and that is what he's doing. So don't think, I'm a Christian, I'll be exempt from these things. Think rather, I'm a Christian, and God will bring glory to his name through and out of these things. Because that's what God is all about. And I want to suggest that's where God's glory is truly seen. When he brings life out of death. Not when he exempts you from death. Because then we know it's the power of God and not man. Then we know The life and the blessing that has come is not anything that a human being could have brought about. 
It is simply and solely the marvelous, awesome power and goodness of God. Amen? That's what, that's what Jesus is wanting to show here. Lazarus is sick, but it's not going to end in death. It's going to end in the glory of God. Because life is going to come out of death. And he says in verse 4 that the glory of God is the glory of the Son. The one who brings life out of death. So you don't know the Father until you know the Son. You don't know the Father until you know the power of God in bringing life out of death. I need to move along here, running out of time. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. It says here, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer. Now in the NIV it says something that mis misleads us. It says, yet when he heard that they were sick, or Lazarus was sick, he stayed. And so there's kind of like, that's strange. He loves them, but he didn't go. But the actual Greek, and it comes out in other translations, is he loves Lazarus and he loves the sisters, so he stayed. And the idea is that Jesus stayed because he loves them. The point is God purposely delayed healing Lazarus, not because he didn't love Lazarus, not because he was callous and didn't care, but actually because he did care, and God wanted to bring a revelation of his power and love and glory and what he can do out of this situation for our good and for their good. So it's because he loves us that he lets us suffer so that he can reveal his glory out of our sufferings. So it's no sign he doesn't love us at all. But in his wisdom, he puts us through those things. Now, how many of you know when God goes to work in, in ways that we don't understand, um, we human beings tend to debate the wisdom of what's going on, right? And that's exactly what we find the disciples doing here. When people are clueless as to what God is doing, they debate, and that's what they're doing. They say, Lord, are you, you want to go back there? They were trying to kill you just a minute ago. Let's not do that. That's a bad idea. They don't even understand the wisdom of what God is doing. It just seems to them like a bad idea. And so often we're like that. We just debate God's wisdom because we don't understand it. Jesus answers them in verses 9 and 10 by essentially saying, there's 12 hours to work, guys. My time is not up yet. My time is coming, and it's coming soon, but we still have a more daylight. And as long as we work in the day, nothing is going to go wrong with us. So Jesus is on God's timetable, not your timetable, and not their timetable. The disciples, however, continue to debate the wisdom of what Jesus is doing. When he says that Lazarus is asleep, they say, that's great, he's asleep, let's just leave him. If he's sleeping, he'll recover, right? I mean, they heard Jesus say in verse 4 that the sickness is not unto death. So when he says Lazarus is asleep, they're like, say, great, why do we need to go? And Jesus says, when I was referring to sleep, I meant he's dead. Here's a perfect example of how Jesus doesn't always speak plainly. as we know, all through the Gospel of John. He doesn't always say things in the plainest manner. Kind of relatively obscure. If you know what he's talking about, you get it. If you don't know what he's talking about, you don't get it. 
To those who believe in the resurrection of the dead and life out of death, death is like sleep. Because like sleep, we lie down, we close our eyes, we, and we wake up again. And Jesus understood that's what was going to happen with Lazarus. There's nothing, there's no, when Jesus says Lazarus is asleep, brothers and sisters, there's, there's no sense here of any doctrine of what's called soul sleep. Maybe you've heard of that, that idea that the idea of soul sleep is like uh, when you die, it's like being asleep. You don't have any consciousness until you rise again, right? Jesus, this is a speculation. Jesus is not saying anything like that. He's just saying he will rise again. I learned a fact when I was studying this. The word cemetery is the Greek word for dormitory. Do you know that? So cemetery, cemetery literally means sleeping place. That's exactly what it means. And it was, the burial grounds were, were called cemeteries by Christians early on. Sleeping places. And one day all will be awoken by Jesus. And look with me at verse 15. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. So Jesus is even glad in this situation after saying, Lazarus is dead and I'm glad I wasn't there. Why is Jesus glad? Not because Lazarus suffered, not because Lazarus died, but because this suffering is going to allow God's glory to be seen by Lazarus, by his sisters, by the disciples. God's knowledge will be revealed and this will bring about faith in God in Christ and in God. And that's what God is after, and that's what God is glad about. So what is God after in your life? It's not to exempt you from suffering. What God is after is you to believe in him. And it's through suffering that God reveals himself so that you can believe in him. So we see that pronounced suffering is no indication God doesn't love us, and it's no indication God is not in control. And God allows suffering to come upon his people for our good, and we can be glad as well when we understand that. Like Jesus, we can be glad and rejoice in our trials. God is bringing good by them. And I'd just like to close briefly now with one final thought from verse 16. And that is, God has suffered for us in order to finally deliver us from all suffering. Now look with me at verse 16. Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also so that we may die with him. Now, the author George Matheson says this, and he comments that Thomas says an, actually a beautiful thing here. Quote, To his mind, there is nothing left for Jesus but to die. And Thomas says, you're going back to Judea, you're dead, you're dead. Well, let's go and die with them. To his mind, there's nothing left for Jesus but to die. But now comes the remarkable thing. Thomas is willing to take Jesus at the lowest, uncrowned, unseated, disrobed. He loves him still. That's amazing, isn't it? It shows that Thomas was truly a disciple of Jesus. He loved Jesus. And he says, if you're going to die, we better just go and die with you. Which is amazing if you consider him as a Jewish person who thinks the Messiah, he, he didn't understand Jesus was going to die or that he was supposed to die, right? None of the disciples understood Jesus' mission. And that's the irony of 
Thomas's statement here, as beautiful as it is, it's filled with ignorance. Because Thomas doesn't understand that Jesus actually came to die. And Thomas also doesn't understand his own self. He doesn't understand his own weakness. He doesn't understand his own lack of strength. Because Thomas, like Peter and the rest of the disciples, when Jesus is finally arrested, what does he do? Does he die with Jesus? No, he flees. He forsakes Jesus and leaves Jesus alone to die, just like everybody else forsakes Jesus and leaves him alone to die. And in a sense, even God forsakes Jesus and leaves him alone to die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Thomas, it's a beautiful statement, but it's full of ignorance. Jesus actually came to die. He does go to Jerusalem again to die. And he goes, he goes to die because that was his purpose in coming into the world. And let's hear it again because we can't hear it enough. I know I can't hear it enough. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The son of God came into the world to suffer. He sees us all suffering. God sees us all dying. God sees us all under God's wrath. And the Bible says that God loves this world and he wants to redeem us from the curse that is upon us because of our sins. And the amazing thing is he doesn't have to do that. This is mercy. This is grace because the wages of sin is death. We deserve that, right? Every single one of us, friends, you and I deserve to die. We deserve that disease that Herod got. We deserve to be forsaken and yet God didn't forsake us, he came. And the good news is that God loves us and Christ came to die by freely giving him his life a sacrifice for us. He substituted himself in our place during his passion. He took our sins, all the reason that the curse came upon the world, he took so that he could purge us of our sins, take our sins away by his sacrifice, provide for us the righteousness we could never provide by our own works so that the curse could be reversed and life and blessing could come our way, resurrection, power, and life, and remove from this world that curse forever and give us the eternal life that God intends for us to have. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's probably the most comforting truth in all of our sufferings. When you suffer, when you feel forsaken by God, when you feel like God doesn't love you, or when you feel pain, you can remember this, the gospel. The most comforting thing of all is that God has suffered, and he suffered for you, and he suffered to finally deliver you from all suffering. And your suffering as a child of God is actually in the wisdom of God, working to show you and teach you about who God is and to reveal to you his resurrection power so that you can have eternal life. And all of this is simply to be received by faith. We don't preach like the rest of the world preaches that salvation is by work. Salvation is by being good, keeping commandments. Salvation is simply by hearing this message, hearing what Jesus has done for you, hearing that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, and putting all of your hope and all of your faith in Jesus alone. And if you put your faith in him, you will not perish. You will become a child of God, and you will have eternal life. If you're his child, you're forgiven and all things are working together for your good and you can be glad and rejoice in your sufferings too. I'd like just to close with a line from a hymn. 
patient, O heart, though heavy be thy sorrows. Be not cast down, disquieted in vain. Yet shalt thou praise him when these darkened furrows where now he ploweth wave with golden grain. Please stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, as we see in this story that you shaped by your providence and in your love for us, Lord, as we see in this story uh, profound suffering on the part of those that you love, I just pray that you would encourage us this morning, encourage us that you're in control of our lives, encourage us that nothing happens to us by accident, Lord, and perhaps for those right now who are experiencing profound suffering, Lord, just encourage them this morning that that this is, does not mean that you don't love them or that you're absent. But Lord, help, help them to learn to just trust in you during that time and rejoice that you're working it for your good to show your glory. And Father, I just pray for, for those who aren't at this time experiencing profound suffering. Just prepare their hearts, Lord, for when it does come, because it will. That we would learn to trust in you, Lord, trust in your love and trust in your wisdom. Thank you for this story, Lord. And thank you for who you are. And most of all, Lord, we thank you this morning again for dying on the cross for our sins and that your death and your blood is what takes away our sins and makes us white as snow. And we just thank you that whoever hopes in you will not be disappointed. So we just reaffirm our love for you, Lord, and we, we reaffirm our trust in you, and we praise you, and your name is hallowed because you're so good and amazing. And we just uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.